following Jesus is the most exciting, most exhilarating, most joyful, and yet the most challenging thing you will ever do. Um, and it's challenging because much of Christianity goes against the grain of our natural inclinations, but it is full of wonder and satisfaction and deep joy. Did you know, just the other day, the combination of a warm spring morning, uh, coming back from my prayer walk and having read a book by G.K. Chesterton, I felt the joy of God just welling up from my heart. It was an amazing experience. The gospel passage today is full of challenges, uh, the challenges of following Jesus. And quite frankly, it's difficult to understand, uh, let alone put into practice. So where do we begin? Well, let's start with a story. During the war, London endured the Blitz, as we know. And on one occasion, the house belonging to one of the priests of Westminster Abbey was bombed and he lost almost all his belongings. So the next day, he went to one of the local stores to buy some clothes to wear. And he ended up buying a large number of shirts and trousers and a jacket. And the shop assistant looked at the pile of clothes and he'd selected and said to him, don't you know there's a war on? Um, and that was precisely the point. He knew more than she did, that there was a war on. So my question to all of us this morning is exactly the same one. Don't you know there's a war on? Yes, I know that the UN said during the week that humankind faces three challenges, three Cs, COVID, climate, conflict. And they may be thought of as kind of wars that we must win, but that's not what I'm talking about. There's a sense in which Christians are at war, another sense. And the questions I want us to think about this morning are, who are we fighting alongside? Who are we fighting against? And how are we to wage this war? Don't you know there's a war on? So the gospel reading begins with a walk-on role for the disciple John who comes to Jesus saying that he had seen someone casting out demons in his name. And that he and some of the other disciples had tried to stop this person because they were not part of Jesus' group. We sometimes think of John as the youngest disciple, and he probably was, who was peaceful and somewhat innocent. After all, he was the only disciple at the cross with Jesus, presumably because the Romans didn't regard him as a threat. He was quite young. But he's also called, along with his brother James, the th sons of thunder. So he does seem capable of robust confrontation. Now, historians inform us that the practice of healing and exorcism was quite common in Jesus' day. There's a reference to Pharisees casting out demons in Matthew chapter 12, and the seven Jewish exorcists from Ephesus are mentioned in Acts chapter 19. But the point is that John is not happy that there's a person who's undertaking this ministry in the name of Jesus. In other words, the per person seems to be a disciple, but he's not one of the 12. And John is wanting to draw the boundaries of legitimate ministry tightly around the official group. You might think of John as an exclusivist. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterwards 
to speak evil of me. John is being told that ministry can indeed happen outside the usual group. God's spirit blows where it will and is not confined to established groups. Not even Jesus and the 12. Ministry in Jesus' name cannot be contained by the official structures or people or groups. And this is very relevant for us today. There are, of course, many denominations in our community. And there are individual Christians seeking to serve Christ in a multitude of ways. Just the other day, I was at a group um, who heard from a very generous donor who wanted to give the cathedral $1 million for kind of chaplaincy work and disciple-making within our city. And he was just kind of a random person, a, a Christian, saying, I just want to do this. And it wasn't through any particularly official channels or anything. He just wanted to do it. But we have uh, churches such as ours. We also have house churches, independent um, house churches within our city, Christian agencies doing such good work all over the place. And individual Christians like that person I mentioned who are working to carry forward God's kingdom who do not necessarily have the official sanction of a church body. What should we do when people work to see God's kingdom established but who sit lightly to official structures? The answer is we should rejoice whenever we see Christians doing anything they can to obey Christ and serve him in the world. If John was an exclusivist, then Jesus appears to be an inclusivist. There is the need, of course, for good boundaries in ministry, good legislation that supports ministry, good support systems for people involved in ministry. And once finances and buildings are involved, we need other levels of accountability. But given that these important principles are fulfilled in some way, we must rejoice whenever and wherever the mission of God takes us. Now, um, sometimes we hear wonderful things happening in other churches. And sometimes we say to ourselves, oh, why isn't that sort of thing happening in our church? Um, but that's not the point. We need to say God is at work in many different ways. He's work, working through our church in different ways. He's working through our neighboring churches in different ways, and that is to be rejoice. So, given there's a war on, who's on our side? Well, more people than we probably realize. And we need to rejoice with believers everywhere, whoever loves and serves Christ. They are our brothers and sisters in arms, in a sense. So, if that's who we're fighting with, who are we fighting against? Well, the face value answer is that we are fighting against the principalities and powers of this dark age, to quote from the scriptures. For example, the demons that this disciple had been casting out. But there are other foes, and I draw your attention to verses 42 to 48. Uh, now, these are very hard verses to deal with. How many of us winced a little bit about talk of millstones and, you know, amputations? things. They're hard verses to deal with, but essentially they are a call to wholehearted discipleship. 
And the enemy of wholehearted discipleship is the enemy we are fighting against. So in the first instance, we fight against temptations and habits and besetting sins of many different kinds. We all have different weaknesses and vulnerabilities. We are all human. We experience the human condition. We struggle and are tempted to do wrong in different ways at different times. But look at verse 42. This is a warning to be aware of how you are influencing others. The heart of this verse is the interesting Greek word scandalizo. It's a wonderful word, scandalizo, which is translated stumbling block. It is a most serious thing. If in our daily lives we do or say something that causes a younger believer to trip up and lose faith in Christ, it may be, for example, coarse talk, it may be unloving actions, it may be selfishness, it may be dishonesty, it may be criticism, it may be snide or hateful comments. People notice how we conduct ourselves and if we act or speak in these ways, we can be a cause for others to stop walking with the Lord. And this especially applies, of course, to what Jesus calls the little ones. These are ordinary disciples, much loved by God, who are going about their business unnamed, unremarkable. They may be young in age or simply young in the faith, but they are looking at us and hoping for encouragement and a model to be inspired by. So we're warned that it is a very serious thing indeed to be the cause of their losing faith in Christ. Of course, there is a limit to how much responsibility we can take because some people do choose to walk away from the Lord. Uh, but we need to take responsibility where we can as far as our lives and the conduct of our lives is concerned. The passage continues with some very vivid word pictures. Jesus is saying that if your foot carries you into temptation and sin, or your hand is the instrument of sin, or your eye looks with lust or covetousness, then lop it off or tear it out. It is better to attain the kingdom of God without a part of your body than to be thrown into hell intact. Right? <laughs> now, it's almost universally agreed you'll be relieved to know that this passage is not to be taken literally. Please don't take this literally. Um, Jesus is using a form of, form of speech called hyperbole that is based on deliberate exaggeration to make a strong point. Sometimes opponents of Christianity latch onto all these verses and say, oh, isn't it medieval and horrible? But that is a very superficial reading of the scriptures. We need to be intelligent and engaged properly with what the Bible is saying. Jesus is simply saying that being a disciple is deadly serious. Being a disciple of Jesus is not for the faint-hearted. It is demanding. It will take your best effort to follow Jesus. Don't you know there's a war on? It's interesting that Jesus unconditionally welcomed publicans and sinners of his day. He was so well known for someone who associated with these folk 
and for the parties, and he ate and drank with them and that sort of thing. And he urged them and invited them to enter the kingdom of God. But to his disciples, he demanded a strict way of life. They were to care for the little ones. They were to eschew sin and resist temptation. In other words, he spoke to sinners about heaven and saints about hell. Hmm. Because there's a war on and our enemy is not only Satan and the evil powers, but also sin and the many things that tempt us away from the path of life. My final question is, what was my first two questions? Who are we fighting alongside? Who, we, who, we, who are we fighting against? And the third question, how then are we to wage this war? Well, we've had two answers already. Watching out for the little ones and resisting temptation. That's how we wage this war, by being a faithful disciple of Jesus, staying the course, persevering when it all gets a bit hard. And how many have sometimes felt that? But verse 49 has something else. Disciples of Jesus are to be salted with fire. There's several little phrases in that last couple of verses, verses 49 and 50, which are quite difficult to understand. But we're to be salted with fire. Uh, what do you make of that, I wonder? Paired together, salt and fire is probably a reference to the temple sacrifices because both salt and fire were associated with certain kinds of sacrifices. So many commentators take this verse to mean the disciple is to be like a holy sacrifice to God. In other words, someone unreservedly dedicated to Christ and the cause of his kingdom. So how do we wage this war? We first of all acknowledge that it is a war and the stakes are very high. No less than your eternal destiny and the destinies of those around you are at stake. Secondly, pay attention. Be careful how you live. Be aware that your words and actions really do matter. Resist the many forms of temptation that come your way. Be holy as Jesus Christ himself was holy. C.S. Lewis really struggled against God in the years, months, days, and even hours before his conversion. He counted the cost. He knew it was going to be costly to follow Christ. He knew that. You see, he thought of God as the transcendental interferer. What a lovely couple of words. In other words, God was going to come in and mess, mess his life up. I quote, the horror of the Christian universe was that it had no door marked exit. No word in my vocabulary exp expressed, and Lewis had a big vocabulary, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. After all, his running away from God, and it's well documented in his wonderful book, Surprised by Joy. Read that book, it's a wonderful book. And after all his rational arguments and questions were answered, he still had a final decision to make to hand over the sovereignty of his life to God. 
And that's essentially what discipleship is all about. To stop running and to let God in and all the implications of that. But here's the key. When he stopped running and let Christ into his life, he found himself to be truly free and he lived the rest of his life as a joyful, growing, faithful disciple who affected the lives of hundreds of thousands, of millions of other people. He did not find it restrictive or constricting or interfering. And that is the paradox of being a Christian. In his service is perfect freedom. G.K. Chesterton, my latest favorite author, said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. Do you find Christianity difficult? Everyone in this room should say yes to that. Are you tempted to stop trying? I suspect everyone has been tempted to stop. Can I urge you this morning to stay the course? Yes, being a Christian disciple is difficult. It is demanding. But don't you know there's a war on? And along with the moral and ethical demands, you'll find that following Jesus is the most exciting, most exhilarating, and most joyful thing you will ever do. Amen.